Well, welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, coming to you today from Castle Arnoldus uh, down in the uh, Orange County Hermitage of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And uh, a lot of Catholics today are confused about what's going on in the church, and this program is dedicated to clearing up that confusion. So today I hope to help you make sense of the Second Vatican Council by sharing what I consider to be uh, probably the best-kept secret of Vatican II. But first, while uh, the Novus Ordo calendar continues with ordinary time, this Sunday in the extraordinary form, in the traditional uh, calendar, was Septuagesima Sunday, which marks the end of Epiphany Tide and the beginning of the pre-Lent season of Septuagesima. Now, that word, Septuagesima, means 70, and according to the Council of Orléans in the year AD 545, many pious ecclesiastics and laypersons in the primitive church would prepare, uh, prepare for Easter by fasting for 70 days. And so their fast was called Septuagesima, a name which then was retained to distinguish this Sunday. And um, the same was the case with the following three Sundays, because at different times, uh, Christians started their fast 60 days before Easter, hence the name uh, Sexagesima, and then others 50 days, and so we have Quinquagesima Sunday, and then 40 days, of course, which is the common fast, uh, Quadragesima. So even though these, obviously these days are not uh, strictly 70, 60, 50 days before Easter, because the Sundays are only seven days apart, for one thing, and, and you know the distinction is 10 days, but they're a commemoration of these ancient practices. So, and that's the thing with the, with the old Missal, even though we, uh, you know, the, the, the church eventually organically set the fast for uh, Lent at 40 days, and we have that season of Lent, and even Lent isn't exactly 40 days, it's really 46, because you don't fast on the Sundays, because, you know, every Sunday is a little Easter. You don't fast when the bridegroom is with you, so to speak. So we have the 40 days plus, you know, the Sundays. <clears throat> and even though that has become the uh, universal custom, we still commemorate these older customs. And, of course, if you wanted to, you know, I mean, speaking of older customs, uh, Lent used to be an actual fast. You would fast all the 40 days of Lent. And, uh, and so it would certainly be able to do that. You could start on one of these earlier Sundays. You could start your fast right now. I'm 60 years old. Well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm 62 years old, actually, uh, which puts me outside the, uh, the, the law of fasting. I'm not required to fast, but um, I, there isn't any better way, in my opinion, to, uh, to grow spiritually than to deny yourself uh, these material goods. And so I have resolved this year to begin my uh, fast in the season of Septuagesima. Uh, and we'll see how that goes. I'll let you know. <laughs> but uh, looking at the gospel for Septuagesima Sunday, it is from Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. It's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And we're reading, as usual, our translation from the New Catholic Bible. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about nine o'clock, he saw some others standing idle in the marketplace. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard and I will give you what is just. When he went out again around noon and at three in the afternoon, he did the same. 
Then about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They answered, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you too go into my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, summon the workers and give them their pay, beginning with those who came last and ending with the first. When those who had started to labor at five o'clock came, each of them received a denarius. Therefore, those who had come first thought that they would receive more, but they were paid a denarius, the same as the others. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner, saying, These men who were hired last worked only one hour, and yet you have rewarded them on the same level with us who have borne the greatest portion of work and the heat of the day. <clears throat> the owner replied to one of them, Friend, I am not treating you unfairly. Did you agree with me to work for a denarius? Then take your pay and leave. I have chosen to pay the latecomers the same as I pay you. Am I not free to do as I wish with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Thus the last will be first, and the first will be last. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, a denarius was a Roman coin that was a typical daily wage at the time. Uh, it was the daily pay of a Roman soldier, for example. But the parable of the workers in the vineyard teaches that the promised kingdom is a gift of grace and not a wage. Christians uh, who do good cannot boast of having any rights before God. I've done good, you owe me X, right? We should merely do all that we can to correspond to his call. Now, this parable is the origin of the popular phrase, the last will be first and the first will be last. And those words, the first will be last, were addressed in the first place to the Jews, who should, of course, have been the very first to enter into Christ's new kingdom, because the promises were made to them. And they, the many, were all called. And of course, you know, the apostles and the, all the first followers of Jesus were, in fact, Jews. But in the next place, in the wider sense, these words are addressed to all men and have a double meaning. First off, that many of those who, you know, in the order of time, are the first to be called, will be the last to receive their reward because they have to suffer uh, for a long time in purgatory, you know, on account of the temporal punishment due to their sins, whereas those later may, on account of their zeal, be received sooner into the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> I think of my own uh, story. You know, I was a, in a front man in a rock and roll band for 10 years, and I worked in Hollywood for 20 in the uh, magic and uh, comedy, and I had a pretty impressive uh, uh, backlog of mortal sins, but being at baptized as an adult in my 30s, all of that and all the temporal punishment due for that got washed away. Uh, not necessarily so for some of my cradle Catholic friends who were baptized as infants. All right, so that's one thing. Secondly, many who, are, uh, who on earth were esteemed to be, you know, the first amongst people by reason of their position or their money, popularity, whatever, um, they will enjoy the lowest degree of happiness in heaven. Whereas many who were despised and who were thought very little of on earth will receive a great reward, the highest of rewards in heaven, you know, just depending upon the way they lived. So <clears throat> parables, of course, are allegorical stories. And in allegorical stories, you know, uh, classic allegory, everything represents something else. So in this parable, the master of the house is God and the marketplace is the world. And the vineyard is God's kingdom on earth, which is the church. And the steward, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, the laborers in the vineyard are the faithful, those who are called by God to believe the one true faith and to live in accordance with it. And the day of work is a lifetime uh, of human beings on earth. And the denarii signify the eternal reward of the beatific vision of, in heaven. So Almighty God calls us at different times to work in his vineyard. In our translation, nine o'clock is literally, it's uh, the third hour. And then noon and three in the afternoon, five o'clock are literally the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the eleventh hour, right? And these correspond to military watches, right? The hours of changing of the guard on the city walls. And likewise, the appointed times of prayer for the divine office or the liturgy of the hours. So the hours in the parable describe how God calls some in the early morning, right, as children, others at the sixth hour in their adolescence, uh, others he calls when they're full-grown men and women, and many he calls at the eleventh hour, at, the, at the, quite in the evening of life, right, in, in the old age even, or, or on the deathbed. And so the paying of wages takes place at the close of the day, that is, at the end of our lives, when death, right, uh, after death, rather, those whom God called late in life will receive an everlasting reward, same as those who were called earlier. If, like the laborers in the vineyard, they obeyed God's voice when he did call them and worked with perseverance, that is, lived according to their faith to the end of the day. So the 11th hour, that's another common expression, comes from this parable. To do something in the 11th hour refers to making changes at the last possible time before it's too late. So in the, in the parable, those who are called at the 11th hour represent sinners who, until they were called, lived without God and didn't have faith or practice uh, good, meritorious good works. So the parable teaches us that even the worst sinner will be saved if at the end of his life, right, in the 11th hour, he opens his heart to God's grace and is converted. So Jesus is saying that salvation doesn't depend on when we are called, because that depends entirely on Almighty God but it does depend on how we obey that call and whether or not we persevere to the end. Furthermore, uh, the parable teaches us that the necessity uh, and the merit of good works, that God calls us into his vineyard to work, right? He calls us on purpose that we can labor for his glory, to save our souls by observing his commandments, by, by avoiding sin and doing good, by faithfully fulfilling our duties as Christians in that state of life, which God in his good pleasure has put us. Now, the Christian who does not do his duty is standing idle and, uh, and is sinning um, by sloth, right? By our labors for God's glory, that is, our good works, we merit heaven, because God in his goodness has promised us heaven as our reward. Now, how does that fit with what I said earlier, uh, uh, that the promised kingdom is a gift of grace and not a wage? Well, because even though the good which we do is not our own work, being at the same time, you know, a, a work of grace, being prompted by grace, Almighty God has pledged himself to reward uh, us for it, just as if it were all our own work. Right? As St. James reminds us, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, for faith without works is dead. Right? Um, you know, um, well, we only have a 20 seconds left. There's, a, there's an, another couple of uh, points I want to make regarding this. So we're going to finish that up when we come back. Also, we're going to talk about uh, Vatican II and what I consider to be really the best-kept secret of Vatican II. So hold on to your hats. We'll be right back. Lots more No-Nonsense Catholic after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. We were talking about the parable of the laborers in the vineyard and those who are called and how we are called at different times of life. The, the final point that I wanted to make is that everyone is called because everyone has been redeemed. Christ died for us all. And we know that God desires everyone to be saved, as St. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 4, and that he gives to all of us sufficient grace to be saved. But the chosen are those who really do attain heaven. So among all uh, those who, I should say, um, all those are among the chosen who correspond with grace uh, and make good use of their calling and of the graces that God gives them. So the number of the the chosen, uh, our Lord says, is small compared to the multitude of those called. And many, many uh, of those are lost by their own fault. And I know this is not a popular teaching uh, these days, but, you know, it's not my teaching. If you have an issue with it, you can take it up with our Lord. In the meantime, I will follow St. Peter, our, our first pope, who said, in 2 Peter 1.10, Wherefore, brethren, labor the more that by good works you may make sure your calling and election. This is when St. Paul's talking about when he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that is no nonsense. This, by the way, these, these teachings that I give you largely come from uh, classic commentaries, uh, including um, St. Thomas Aquinas has his great collection of patristic uh, uh, commentary called the the Golden Chain uh, on the Four Gospels. And, um, you know, very much what I'm doing is is, uh, taken from medieval sources, right? And what we've been talking about today is the foundation of what the medievals called the quest for Christian perfection, or what Vatican II calls uh, the universal call to holiness. And, you know, sometimes I suspect people wonder why I refer so much to medieval literature and symbolism. And well, I came across a good answer in the introduction to a book that I, I discovered a couple of years ago. Not surprisingly, it was uh, it's from the Middle Ages. It was written in the 1300s in, in Spain. And the book is called El Conde Lucanor, or Count Lucanor and the 50 Pleasant Stories. It's sometimes known as the Spanish Boccaccio. Boccaccio uh, was a uh, Italian author, medieval author, who, you know, put together a bunch of stories. But it, after the invention of movable type, uh, the first printed edition of this book was published in the year of our Lord, 1525. So this book's been around for a while. It was popular in the Middle Ages. It was one of the uh, early printed books. My English translation was done in the 1880s. And the translator in his introduction said, it is indeed time that such a book so full of the antique simplicity and wisdom should be appreciated. And I, I heartily agree with that. I think that we, I think the whole church is in need of a good Gothic revival. I think that we need to, to, you know, I think, I think we're seeing the, the, the kind of the, the death throes of that, that generation that is defined by what they call the spirit of Vatican II, who is, who is obsessed with novelty. I think it's time. And I think younger people are realizing we need to look uh, back at where we've been before we can figure out where we're going. And, and I've been hosting No-Nonsense Catholicism or No-Nonsense Catholic a couple of years now. Uh, but I know that we have new listeners all the time. So um, I want to take a minute to remind you what I mean by the term No-Nonsense Catholic. See, because there's a lot of confusion in the church today. And most of that confusion is the fault of, of what Bishop Sheen called 
butt Catholics. Okay, what's a what's a butt Catholic? That is those who say such things as I'm Catholic, but I'm pro-choice. I'm Catholic, but I don't believe anybody goes to hell. I'm Catholic, but I think the church should ordain women. I'm Catholic, but fill in the blank. Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, John Kerry, all notorious exemplars of butt Catholicism. And sadly, butt Catholics can be found amongst prominent clergy and religious, as well as the laity. There's no shortage of those who, who think that it's possible to remain a, a good Catholic while rejecting some truth or truths of the faith, or who believe that the truths of the Catholic faith uh, can be subject to change without notice. Faithful Catholics need to understand that this is nonsense, regardless of who's the source. Whether it's, you know, a, a powerful politician or a popular priest, there's no expiration date on the truth. Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whoever breaks one commandment is guilty of breaking them all. Our Lord himself said, <clears throat> pardon me, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. If you remain in my word, you will truly be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, I, I apologize, I'm in my home studio, so I don't have a cough button. Uh, Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, he says, but by me. Jesus Christ is not a way, not the preferred way. He is the only way, and that is no nonsense. So in brief, what I'm saying is it doesn't matter to me what liturgy you prefer, whether you say Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, whether or not you include the Luminous Mysteries when you pray the Rosary, or whether you read the New American Bible or the Douay Reims Version, so long as you hold the Catholic faith whole and entire. Simply put, a no-nonsense Catholic is one who can say the act of faith and really mean it, who can say, oh my God, I firmly believe all of these things, because you have revealed them. All the truths that the Holy Catholic Church believes and teaches, you have revealed them. God has revealed them who can neither deceive nor be deceived. Right? And to believe that is to be a no-nonsense Catholic. Now, speaking of the crisis in the Church, Vatican II is the elephant in the room. How so, pray tell, you ask. Well, because the 21st Ecumenical Council of the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church was unique in the history of ecumenical councils, and novelty always spells trouble for the Church. Consider, if you will, the first seven ecumenical councils. Council of Nicaea was held in 325 AD. It condemned Arianism and proclaims that the divine word, the Son of God, is consubstantial with the Father. Draws up the Nicene Creed. Okay. The second was Constantinople in 381 AD, which condemned the Macedonians who denied the divinity and consubstantiality of the Holy Spirit. And they published uh, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, uh, which is the statement of faith that we recite to this very day at Sunday Mass. And then in Ephesus in 431 AD, it condemned Nestorianism, which denied Mary was the mother of God and defines the hypostatic union, right? Kind of going back to the Council of Nicaea that's saying God the Son is consubstantial with the Father. Uh, Ephesus gives us that definition, um, or rather Chalcedon in, in 451, 
condemned monophysitism and gives us the definition of the hypostatic union, right? That there are two perfect natures in Christ, divine and human. And then in Constantinople II, in 553 AD, uh, condemned the writings of three theologians who were suspected of Nestorianism. And Constantinople III, in 680, condemned monothelitism, which denies um, the existence of two wills in Christ, that he has a human will and a divine will. Uh, and, you know, as we can see illustrated in, in the Lord's prayer to the Father during his agony, Father, if it be thy will, you know, not thy will, or not my will, but thine be done. And then the Seventh Ecumenical Council was Nicaea II in 787 AD, which condemned the iconoclasts uh, who were, you know, going around destroying all the, all the paintings and statues and stained glass windows and such, and it defines and authorizes and regulates the legitimate use of images in Catholic worship. Now, obviously, these, cast, these councils tackled weighty and hotly disputed theological matters, right? Christology, uh, uh, the... the the, the nature of the Blessed Virgin, whether or not you can have statues in the Catholic Church. These are all, you know, very basic, uh, uh, fundamental matters. And, and they crafted definitions that cleared up the confusion and have stood the test of time. And the decisions of these councils, they're, they're indispensable to Catholicism because they directly impact the belief and therefore the salvation of every member of the Church. And Vatican II was different. You know, a couple of years ago, there was a piece in Crisis Magazine called Vatican II, A Lawyer's Perspective by uh, James Kalb. And he maintains that unlike the previous ecumenical councils, the major documents of Vatican II don't really give us much that's concrete. He said they enact no canons, pronounce no anathemas, decide no particular cases, and adopt no new doctrinal definitions. Instead, they present lengthy discussions of the church and its relation to the world that are sometimes eloquent and sometimes confusing. And commenting on that article with his own article, uh, uh, fellow Catholic attorney Chris Ferrara said, this council, unlike any before it, wanted to say a lot of things about a lot of subjects in the form of commentaries on this or that, rather than simple declarative statements of what the church teaches and what the faithful must hold. The subject matter of every ecumenical council before Vatican II so consequently, Calb observes that the documents of this unique council are twice as long as the first seven ecumenical councils put together. Now that bears repeating. We just went through the crucial teachings of the first seven ecumenical councils. God the Son's consubstantial with the Father, the divinity and consubstantiality of the, of the Holy Spirit, the Nicene Creed, the divinity, their divine maternity of Mary, that Christ is both true God and true man, that Christ has a human will and a divine will, the legitimate use of images in Christian worship. You know, these are not the only teachings of these councils. These are just the, the, the main historic dogmatic ones. And yet the documents of Vatican II are twice as long as all of them put together. Even though Vatican II uh, contains no decrees, no canons, no anathemas, no new definitions, Kalb says even when the documents deal with something fairly concrete, like the reform of the liturgy or the reform of religious life, they leave the specifics to future decision. And that is, uh, I think, an important uh, aspect of Vatican II is so much of it is, is them kicking the can down the road. Right? He, Kalb even says that where the council documents venture, venture into language that might appear binding, 
He says it's not always clear what they bind us to. Council says that people have a right to religious freedom within due limits. But, but what limits are due? Council shows us we can say favorable things about the modern age and other religions, and that's true. <clears throat> but we can also say not so favorable things. And the prudence of one statement or another isn't something on which definitive guidance is even possible. And the result is that 50 plus years after the close of Vatican II, he says, we still have no accepted understanding of what it did. Instead, we have those who support a hermeneutic of continuity and those who support a hermeneutic of rupture, with the latter divided between those who reject the traditional church and those who reject the council. And more on that later. But for the sake of clarity, a, a hermeneutic is the interpretive principle that you apply to something. In this case, an interpretation of the Second Vatican Council as a part of the ongoing Catholic tradition, for good or for bad, or a clean break with Catholic tradition. Which interpretation is correct? What key do you use to make that interpretation? That more when we come back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Talking about the best-kept secret, what I call the best-kept secret of Vatican II. Before the break, I said that 50-plus uh, years after the close of the Second Vatican Council, we still have no accepted understanding of what it did. Instead, we have those who support an interpretation of Vatican II as part of the ongoing Catholic tradition, or, for good or for ill, a clean break with that tradition. A hermeneutic of continuity, in other words, uh, versus a hermeneutic of rupture. But I would venture to suggest that um, most of those Catholics who are committed to the hermeneutic of rupture, who think that, you know, the, the Vatican II was a break with the tradition of the Church, whether they think it's good or bad, most of them have very likely never read the 16 documents of Vatican II in their entirety. And furthermore, I can understand why. It's not light reading. Some parts of the documents are quite dense. But, you know, to be fair, some parts of the documents of the Council of Trent are dense. Parts of the syllabus of error are dense. Scripture is dense, okay? And to be sure, uh, history records that not all the decrees of the previous 20 ecumenical councils were met with docility. And some were, for a time, hotly resisted. Some have been abandoned. I recently saw uh, uh, some uh, prelate tweeted um, very emphatically that Vatican II was an ecumenical council, so you have to accept everything from Vatican II as the Holy, from coming from the Holy Spirit, and to go against an ecumenical council is to go against the Holy Spirit. And somebody retweeted it, and but he took out Vatican II and put in Lateran IV, and then with with a uh, uh, little screenshot of one of the uh, decrees of, of Lateran IV, which is that Jews were not to hold public office, and because of the danger of uh, of intermarriage, you know, or, or, uh, becoming too intimately, uh, united with someone not of the Catholic faith, the Jews were then required to wear, uh, some kind of clothing that would identify them as Jews. Okay. Now, I don't think anybody today would be arguing that that was, uh, a, a dogmatic or doctrinal definition that came directly from the Holy Spirit and therefore had to be, you know, uh, followed in perpetuity. Right. 
There, and, and that's the difference between a doctrinal teaching and a pastoral one. Pastoral teachings deal with concrete situations at a particular time. Okay. So even, but the point is that even dogmatic uh, uh, definitions are often hotly resistant. And that's, that's to be expected. Heretics just don't go away because you point out their error. You know, <laughs> uh, just because an ecumenical council says no more Arianism doesn't mean that the Arians all throw up their hands and say, oh, guess I'll go back to being Orthodox. Right? If they had a lively respect for the authority of the church in the first place, they wouldn't be heretics to, to begin with. But, but history does not admit of any post-conciliar period after Trent or Nicaea or Vatican I or, or the, the official imposition of the spirit of Trent or the spirit of Second Lateran or so forth. Right? I think the current depth of confusion regarding the teaching of an ecumenical council is particular to Vatican II. Not that there's never been confusion, but the confusion of this type. And but so the question is, what's responsible for that unique situation? And I would suggest it's because Vatican II is like a map without a legend, right? Since it did not do, issue decrees or anathemas, it doesn't provide an interpretational key. You know, it was meant to be a pastoral council. That's not that's beyond dispute. And having no uh, defined no new doctrines or canons or anathema, I think it seemed unnecessary, uh, you know, to to issue canons and decrees. Although, if you look at the documents, you'll discover that Pope Paul VI felt the need to add appendices to some documents and explanatory notes to some of the documents so that people could understand, hey, you know, this needs to be understood in the, you know, uh, the tradition of the church. See, and that's the most remarkable and albeit little known fact about the Second Vatican Council, what I call the best kept secret of Vatican II is simply this, that the documents of Vatican II do not require a Catholic to believe or do a single thing that he was not obliged to believe or do before the council. In other words, Vatican II did not change the Catholic faith. Okay, that's no nonsense. But it, it is, it's a common assertion that it did, though, you know, the cause of our post-conciliar confusion stems from the fact that the 16 documents are ambiguous. Uh, Archbishop Vigano, uh, a couple of years ago, became the latest in a long line of critics to make that claim. And by his own mission, he, he came late to the game by about 50 years. But however this common, the claim of ambiguity may be, I, I would suggest that that's a, a simplistic uh, accusation. In point of fact, there, there is much in the documents of Vatican II that is quite clear and clearly traditional, uh, as we've often demonstrated on this program with the our uh, Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up segments. But if it's not ambiguity, why is there difficulty in interpretation? Uh, Bishop Barron, among many others, has pointed out that there were two main currents among the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. And I think we should remember, you know, the Council Fathers of Vatican II were human beings. Uh, and as with any such group, there's, you know, probably 20% of them did 80% of the work. So these two dominant currents were represented by, by what were probably relatively small, but quite vocal minorities. And in the first current, and if you studied the matter at all, this familiar, uh, this term is going to be familiar to you. Uh, and that is the, the Italian term, uh, giornamento, which roughly translated means updating. And the other approach is known by a French word, ressourcement, or a return to the sources. Now, to put the best possible spin on a giornamento is to take the position of St. John XXIII. Um, his um, opening speech, uh, his opening address 
uh, of the council, I think is the first church document that ever had the word aggiornamento in it. So he uh, took the position essentially that the church, and after the horrific events of the first half of the 20th century, I needn't remind you that, uh, you know, there were two world wars that were largely fought, you know, an entire theater that war was fought there in Europe, the former Christendom. Uh, you know, after all of that, the first half of the 20th century, that the church needed to restate the truths of the deposit of faith in language that's more readily understood by modern people or people today, although the today in question was, you know, <laughs> the early 60s. So the point is that he's talking about updating, not in, in the sense of changing the teachings to try and make them more relevant, which is a, a fool's errand and, and against the infallible teaching of Trent and Vatican I and the constant tradition of the church, but rather to update the way the teachings are presented. Hence, Vatican II was meant to be, in Pope St. John XXIII's own words, a pastoral council. That's the true aggiornamento. Ressourcement, on the other hand, is about going back to the sources. Uh, that would be the Bible and the fathers of the church to inform our present situation. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's certainly common even amongst the most conservative Catholic theologians, like Scott Hahn, for example. And after all, as the old saying goes, the stream runs clearer the closer to the source. But but ressourcement was not to be understood as antiquarianism, uh, also known as archaeologism, which is a heresy <clears throat> identified by Pope Pius XII as the false notion that ancient teachings are superior just because they're ancient, without taking into account the organic development of the church's understanding of the truth contained in the deposit of faith. Right, That would be unacceptable. So for Pius XII, that would apply even to liturgical customs. And he gave specific examples of turning the priest around to face the congregation, celebrating the Mass entirely in the vernacular, uh, celebrating the Mass on an altar that looks like a table, distributing communion in the hand, right? All of these, he said, are unacceptable changes, which, of course, were made after Vatican II on the rather dubious claim of, well, that's how they did it in the early church. And even if that were true, the fact remains that all those practices were subsequently abandoned universally in the church for more than a thousand years. And Sacrosanctum Concilium, the, the Vatican II constitution on the liturgy, says that any change to the liturgy must be organic and proceed from some clear necessity, that is, from some objective need. It's difficult to see how any of these changes qualify. In any case, it's patently false to say that they were done by mandate of the council. That's just, you know, that's a false assertion, and it would be a false resource small, and it would represent the hermeneutic of rupture. So a giornamento and resource small, clearly those two currents are at odds, as are their interpretations of the council. And that's not terribly surprising. You know, it's, after all, it's how do you return to the sources while you're updating, right? But, but back to our central question. Are the documents themselves ambiguous? Dr. Alan Schreck, whom I've met personally and with whom I've shared a podium, has suggested that what's perceived as ambiguity in the documents of Vatican II is due to the presence of the two opposing currents, a, a giornamento and resourcement, in the same documents. And those documents ultimately represent an attempted detente between the two approaches. He thinks that it was handled beautifully. <clears throat> and I suspect that this compromise is one of the reasons that the documents are so long. And 
Any discussion of a topic as large as an ecumenical council runs the risk of oversimplification. But you might say that the the prolixity, the, the wordiness of the documents of Vatican II stems from the fact that many of those 16 documents are really two different documents cobbled together. And this may account for the experience of so many ordinary Catholics for whom the words of the documents start to, to you know, swim on the page when they try to read them. It's like, and of course, they, these documents were prepared by committees. And as my father used to say, God rest his soul, a committee is a group of well-meaning people that take a good idea down a dark alley and strangle it to death. So the concrete interpretation of the documents of Vatican II was left open to those who were responsible for the implementation of the documents. And that happened through a veritable avalanche of post-conciliar instructions, all of them prepared by various committees, and and also, by the way, uh, that, that the content of those instructions was presented to the public, which, of course, involved the media, and the media interpreting events through their own lens, which is, you know, the secular categories of liberal versus conservative or progressive versus reactionary. You know, that is what ultimately determined which current would be dominant. And as is readily apparent, updating in the worst sense of the word won the day. But that's only one side of the hermeneutic of rupture. The other camp is represented by the more radical traditionalists who also believe that Vatican II broke the tradition of the church. But rather than rejecting the tradition, they reject the council. And that would include now Archbishop Vigano. But long before he entered the fray, Cardinal Ratzinger had something to say, and we'll hear about that when we come back with more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this. Welcome back. I've been talking about the uh, what I call the best-kept secret of Vatican II which I'll reiterate before we're done. And we were talking about the way that Vatican II has been interpreted and the two currents that were active at the time. So you have the people that want to update, the people that want to return to the sources, and um, the documents or the documents of Vatican II not including decrees or anathema. So the interpretation was left to those who were implementing the documents. And largely this came from people in the two camps, um, and have been presented to the world as though as a clean break with the tradition of the church at the council Vatican council II is, you know, some super council that, that, uh, negates all the previous ones, but that's only one. And that's the hermeneutic of rupture, but it's only one camp. The other camp is represented by the more radical traditionalists. They also believe the Vatican II broke with the tradition of the church, but rather than rejecting the tradition, they reject the council. And this would now include even a, a figure uh, as eminent as Archbishop Vigano. But, but long before he entered the fray, all the way back in 1988, Cardinal Ratzinger uh, addressed this clash between these two ways of interpretation, these manifestations of the hermeneutic of rupture and, and uh, uh, continuity. He says, it is a necessary task to, to defend the Second Vatican Council as valid and as binding upon the church. But, he says, there's a mentality of narrow views that isolate Vatican II and which has provoked the traditionalist movement, right? What he says provoked opposition, he's talking about the traditional movement. There are many accounts of it which give the impression that from Vatican II onward, everything's been changed and that what preceded it has no value or at best has value only in light of Vatican II. 
He said the Second Vatican Council has not been treated as a part of the entire living tradition of the church, but as an end of tradition, as a new start from zero. The truth is, he says, this particular council defined no dogma at all, but deliberately chose to remain on a modest level as a merely pastoral council, and yet many treat it as though it had made itself into a sort of super dogma, which takes away the importance of all the rest. And that's made stronger by the things that are now happening. He's talking about the uh, um, considering the traditional Latin mass, suddenly, he says, as the most forbidden of all things, the one thing that can be safely prohibited. He says it's intolerable to criticize decisions that have been taken since the council. But on the other hand, if people question the ancient rules or even great truths of the faith, for instance, the corporal virginity of Mary, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the immortality of the soul, etc., he says nobody complains or does so with only the greatest moderation. And that leads a great number of people to ask themselves if the church of today is really the same as that of yesterday or if they've changed it for something else. And that, and he put his finger directly on it. He says, in the spiritual movements of the post-conciliar era, there is not the slightest doubt that frequently there's been an obliviousness or even a suppression of the truth. Here, perhaps, we confront the crucial problem for theology and pastoral work today. The idea that all religions are only symbols of what is ultimately incomprehensible has already penetrated into liturgical practice. When things get to this point, faith is left behind. Because faith really consists in the fact that I am committing myself to the truth. So in this matter also, there's every motive to return to the right path. It's like C.S. Lewis said, we all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, the guy who turns back first is the most progressive. And you see that what, what he said here, all religions are only symbols of what is ultimately incomprehensible. That is the antithesis of Catholicism. Catholicism isn't yet another human system of people trying to reach out to God trying to reach God by their own efforts. It's God reaching out to man and revealing the truth. Okay? Completely different. Now, after he became Pope, uh, Benedict XVI, you know, he talked about that hermeneutic of rupture, virtues, continuity. Um, on the 40th anniversary of the close of Vatican II, he said, what's been the result of the council? Was it well-received? What in the acceptance of the council was good and what was inadequate or mistaken? I mean, at least he suggests that, you know, the implementation of the council, that some things are good and some things weren't. What still remains to be done? He says, why has the implementation of the council in large parts of the church been so difficult? And then he answers his own question. It, it all depends on the correct interpretation of the council, on its proper hermeneutics, the correct key to its interpretation and application. The problems in its implementation arose from two contrary hermeneutics. One caused confusion, the other, silently, but more and more visibly, uh, bore and is bearing fruit. On the one hand, there's the interpretation I would call a hermeneutic of discontinuity and rupture. It has frequently availed itself of the sympathies of the mass media, and also one trend of modern theology. You're talking about progressive theology. On the other, there's the hermeneutic of renewal in the continuity of the church, which the Lord has given us, subsequently known simply as the hermeneutic of continuity. So that's a subject that increases over time and develops, but you know, or the, the church is a subject that increases in time and develops, but always remains the same. The hermeneutic of discontinuity risks ending in a split between the preconciliar and postconciliar church. It asserts that the texts of the council do not express the true spirit of the council. It claims they're the result of compromises 
in which to reach unanimity, it was found necessary to keep and reconfirm many old things that are now pointless. Right? And that would be the parts of the documents that I've described as clear and clearly traditional. But Pope Benedict says the true spirit of the council is not to be found in these compromises, but instead, or I mean, he's saying that hermetic rupture says the true spirit of the council is not in the compromises, right, that, that allow the old, but uh, toward the impulses toward the new. And that those innovations alone were supposed to represent the true spirit of the council. Um, and, and starting from and in conformity with those, only those teachings that have the true spirit of the council, would it be possible to move ahead? And precisely because the texts imperfectly reflect the true spirit, it's necessary to go courageously, courageously beyond the text and make room for the newness and blah, blah. Which, you, as you can see, I mean, that's, that, that's a recipe for disaster, which we've seen play out over the last half century. But he says, in a word, it would be necessary not to follow the council, not the text of the council, but its spirit. He said, in this way, obviously, a vast margin was left open for the question on how this spirit should be defined, and room was consequently made for every whim. Right? That's his description of the mischief caused by the notorious spirit of Vatican II. But he says, the nature of a council as such is therefore basically misunderstood. In this way, it's considered as a, a sort of constituent that eliminates an old constitution and creates a new one. However, the council fathers had no such mandate, and no one had ever given them one, nor could anyone have given them one, because the essential constitution of the church comes from the Lord and was given to us that we might attain eternal life. So he puts his finger on it. This is a revealed religion. It's not something that we make up as we go along and, and, and change to, to suit the fancy of the day. And that's why he says the false hermeneutic of rupture is countered by the hermeneutic of continuity, as it was presented by uh, St. John the Twenty-Third at the opening of the council. He said the council, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> I apologize. He said the council wishes to transmit the doctrine pure and integral without any attenuation or distortion. So he says right in the opening speech of Vatican II, no changes and no misrepresentations. He goes on. Our duty is not only to guard this precious treasure, as if we were concerned only with antiquity, but to dedicate ourselves with an earnest will and without fear to that work which our era demands of us. It is necessary that adherence to all the teaching of the Church in its entirety and preciseness <coughs> pardon me, be presented in faithful and perfect conformity to the authentic doctrine. Sorry. <clears throat> which, however, should be studied and expounded through the message of methods of research and literary forms of modern thought. He concludes by saying the substance of the ancient doctrine and the deposit of faith is one thing, <clears throat> and the way in which it's presented is another, but always retaining the same meaning and message. <clears throat> I got a dry spot in my throat and it won't go away. I apologize, folks. <clears throat> Sorry. Pope Benedict said, just to sum up, he said the one way in which Vatican II can be made plausible is to present it as it actually is, one part of the unbroken, unique tradition of the Church and of her faith. Let's look at that. 
the one way, right, that the only way that Vatican II can be made plausible, that is credible, believable, acceptable, reasonable, okay? The only way to, to see Vatican II as credible and believable is to present it as one part of the unbroken tradition of the Church and her faith. See, Vatican II happened, and we have to reveal, uh, uh, deal with the reality of the Council. And the real council, not the spirit of the council, but the actual council. And the way to do that is to interpret Vatican II with a hermeneutic of continuity, meaning not that everything that's happened after Vatican II is is somehow uh, automatically traditional. That's nonsense. But rather that we must interpret the actual words of the documents, not what somebody might have intended maybe, but interpret the actual words of the document in accordance with the constant tradition of the Church, and not reinterpret the tradition of the Church in light of Vatican II, which is the hermeneutic of rupture. And the only way to do that, I think, I mean, the starting point has to be what I called at the beginning of this tirade, the the best-kept secret of Vatican II, which is simply this, that the documents of Vatican II do not actually oblige a Catholic Okay, oblige. They do not require, force, compel, or obligate any Catholic to believe or do a single thing that he was not obliged to believe or do before the Council. In other words, Vatican II did not change the Catholic faith. Now, admittedly, much has changed de facto in Catholic belief and practice on account of uh, the the so-called spirit of Vatican II, on account of the hermeneutic of rupture. But nothing has really changed de jure. You know, when the Pope changes a a paragraph in the Catechism, that's not the same as changing the teaching of the Church. The deposit of faith is intact, and it must be held whole and entire. And that means no buts. And I can tell you that those parishes and schools and religious communities that do hold the faith and faithfully and reverently celebrate the liturgy and encourage confession and traditional devotions, those parishes are flourishing. In fact, only those uh, parts of the church that promote traditional Catholicism, no-nonsense Catholicism, regardless of, of their form of the Mass, <clears throat> they alone are the only sectors of the church that are growing instead of shrinking. And that's putting uh, the fruit of putting into practice the hermeneutic continuity. It is the only way forward, and that is no-nonsense. And I believe that we are seeing that no-nonsense approach on the part of a number of bishops who are not going out of their way to try and implement traditionis custodes. I'll have a few more words about that next week. In the meantime, I want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We couldn't do it without you. I do invite you to come back next week for more. And until then, may God richly bless you and your family.